Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Cowkey. Today, I have a very old contact of mine. He's not very old, but I've known him for a long time, John Trenor. He is a psychotherapist, a specialist in emotional intelligence. He's helped a number of businesses grow through many years, and he's raised over £200 million through his investor network, and he also lectures at Cranfield. So, John, would you mind giving us a quick introduction, 90 seconds, onto who you are and your journey to date? Yeah, hi. So, yes, I'm John Trenor. I'm an executive coach, really. I've designed courses in mindfulness leadership and emotional intelligent leadership for Cranfield, as you said, for among others. I practice as a psychotherapist for executives in uh, business in Harley Street, and I've got my own little private psychotherapy now that we all do on Zoom and, and Skype. But I started life, and I think my true passion has always been in sales. Salesman for 20 years, started on market stalls, and then I graduated to selling food for, for Ross Foods. And my first exposure and the theme that I particularly want to get across today is continual professional development, CPD, was with Rank Xerox when I did PS2, which was my first exposure to sales training. And then I went on to Canon Business Machines, TAC training. I worked for TAC training for a long time and I sold courses, so I had to go on all the courses, which was interesting. And then I ended up at Yellow Pages as a sales trainer. And we was a sales trainer at Yellow Pages, which was probably some of the best training, sales training that I've ever had, apart from your good self, Mr. Coaching. And then I went on to some buyer's courses. I thought this is, I got interested in the psychology of sales. And I thought, well, the only way to really understand sales is to understand what the person on the other side of the table is thinking. So I went on a couple of buying courses and aligned my, the sales journey to the buyer's journey, if you like, because I was fascinated about that particular area. And then somebody said, well, what are you going to sell? I thought, that's a very good question. I said, I have no idea, really. I like selling. And they said, well, sell something you love. That's the best thing. Get a passion about what you're going to sell. So um, I loved films. So I applied to all the film companies and got a job with MGM. And uh, that's where I started really selling after Yellow Pages and all the something I loved. I was doing selling before things that I didn't particularly love, but I was learning the art or the basics. Did, did do my apprenticeship in sales. And then I went on from MGM to Paramount University. I was picked up by Sony, who were launching into the film business in the 80s. They put me on a, a degree. So I did a, a BA in um, the psychology of marketing and ended up director for sales and marketing for Europe for Sony. So that's kind of my career to date. Today, I run a company with a co-founder called EI People. And we provide we provide services into how to get the best out of your teams, a little bit like your organization, but we focus on awareness, how to, how to build your awareness through emotional intelligence, how to become more resilient, how to become more aware of yourself and aware of other people, which is important in the sale, I think. Tell me, uh, you, know, you hear a lot about emotional intelligence. I'm sure a lot of people think they know what it is. What is EI? Well, it's often called EQ or EI. 
and a lot of people do get very scared of this 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 terminology emotional intelligence especially the male population tend to be very wary of emotions uh, and they always think that if it's intelligence is involved that we're going to do a we're going to look at how intelligent they are and it it really isn't about that it's about becoming more aware of yourself it's about improving your regard for yourself it's about becoming more aware, aware of other people and how you regard other people. But it's also about your relationship with trust, with flexibility, with empathy, how authentic you are, how resilient you are. The good thing about emotional intelligence is once you've had your profile done, it, it not only says, here are your three key development areas, it says, here are the three areas of strength that you possess that you can share with other people and use in a leadership fashion to be able to shine and help them through their, through their growing as well. So emotional intelligence basically is your interpersonal and personal skills about yourself, how to develop yourself. So I frequently see people who are blissfully self-unaware. What are the implications of being unaware of your impact on other people? It's a very good question. Well, basically, a lot of people live in a bubble. A lot of people are. And I, many, many years ago as a salesman, it was all about me and my product and what I was going to do for the other person. I think, and I was, I was literally one of those people. I was, I was blissfully unaware of, of what they were going through until I started to go on buyer's courses and then started to get a bit more empathy with you know, the sort of stages that they were going through as I was going through the, the stages of the sale. I think the easy answer is ignorance. You can be blissful in your, in your ignorance, but it's no excuse for failure. And I think that if we remain ignorant for too long and bury our head in the sand, we are never going to really fully actualize and realize ourselves and be able to tr- truly live a life that gives you the best rewards they can. Let's bring this back to some practical side of things. What are the hard and soft costs associated with people who are unaware of or have low EQ? Hard and soft. Well, I, I, think, I think the cost to them personally is they're not, re- they're not actually really fulfilling themselves. That's the first point. And the, and the, and the second point, if they've got low EQ, Q or EI, they are blissfully unaware of what's going on for people. They lack empathy, effectively. And I think if you lack empathy, and a lot, I know a lot of salespeople do, and I think you probably have come across it as a lot yourself. They tend to, to, to border on often narcissistic, sociopathic tendencies to just become an island and plow on regardless, and I've got my target and I'm going to meet it no matter what. The costs can be catastrophic in terms of the relationships, particularly on repeat selling. If they don't have empathy and get to learn and understand their customers, I think that that's going to cost them dearly in financial terms, in relationship terms. They lose out on building trust. And I think trust in sales is going to become increasingly important, which I'd like to come on to a little bit later. So the hard costs are going to be financial and the soft costs, I think, are probably going to be more personal and humanistic, and they're going to lose out on really being able to contribute a lot more 
to the other person's side of the story, if you like, through the sales process. I think another area that people will pay a heavy price is too often leadership have a view that top producers should move into management. And we know that they are wildly different skill sets and the emphasis is on others rather than hitting one's own production target. So how do you go about uh, assessing whether or not someone is suitable for management before you lose a good salesperson and gain an atrocious manager who will then lose an entire sales team off the back of their bullying or their incapacity? Well, during your introduction, um, and we are old friends, if you like, old um, colleagues, but I am old, I am 65, and I am officially retired and an old age pensioner. But like you, over the years, I've seen people promoted beyond their level of, to positions beyond their level of competence or ability. The greatest salespeople often don't make the, the greatest managers. There are different qualities, as you quite rightly pointed out. That, that need to be um, identified. In fact, I started carrying the bag a long time with a guy who was a, as good as, if not better salesman than me. And when it came for the national sales manager's job, I got it and he didn't, and he could never understand why, and he hasn't spoken to me since. But to, to determine that, emotional intelligence is, is really critical. And you can do it under the personal development banner, the, the continual professional development banner, we run profiles on people and it becomes pretty clear which people are. I mean, I know you guys use, uh, you're very close to DISC, aren't you? The DISC model. Yeah, we and use DISC. Yeah, and you can, you can find out from there whether or you're a yellow or a red or, a, you know, you're, 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 you're naturally going to be an a, a, a extrovert, if you like, a natural salesperson. But that doesn't necessarily inspire others. It can, it can alienate you. What emotional intelligence does, it can show you ways you can build your awareness and build the skills that you need for management if that's a route that you're going to take. Sometimes we can look at a profile that comes back and immediately we know this person's got absolute potential. They've got high EI, high IQ. They've got high awareness, high regard for others. They've got a natural tendency towards management. Some people just don't have that. Some people are just good at selling and that's all they ever want to do and that's all they will ever do. You can train them to in management and you can put development programs around them to build their emotional intelligence. But as you know yourself, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Well, you can if you put salt in the oats, but that's generally going to result in kidney failure. Okay, so tell me this then. When you look at these reports on, uh, from their EI report, what are the indicators that somebody has high empathy and has high self-awareness? What, what, what are the clues? Well, I think the emotional intelligence is not a report, really. It's a profile. So the way it works is we send, out, send you a link, which like you've done to invite yeah. somebody to it. They go online. And they spend 35 minutes answering a series of questions. And it helps them 
really focus down on on key particular areas. And what we try and do, that report, that generates this profile. The profile comes to me, if you like, and I've been doing emotional intelligence profiles for 15, 16 years now. And it's a multi-scale scoring system, if you like. And the scores are presented in a one to 10 scale. And they're compared against a comparison group of 25,000 others in their sector. So if it was sales, they'd be compared against 25 other sales or managers or directors or whatever. And it looks at their attitude, how they're, they're, their self-regard, regard for others, feeling, self-awareness, management. The key area, going back to your previous point, is how emotionally resilient are they? How, how much are they in their own personal power is another one. Goal-directedness. Do they have a, a long-term vision and a, uh, and a goal? How flexible are they? How well are they connecting with others? And how authentic are they in how they come across? Relationship management is key to management, as you know. So trust. Are they mistrusting? Are they carefully trusting? Are they over, overly trusting? All the scores give us a real strong indicator. Do they have a balanced outlook? Are they too optimistic? Are they too pessimistic? Are they under control? Are they free and in charge? Or are they over-controlled? How well do they handle conflict? Are they passive-aggressive, passive-aggressive, or just assertive? And the key one, I think, in, in the question you're asking is, how well do they manage to balance taking yourself and other people into consideration, which is an interdependence question. In other words, are they dependent on others? Do they look to be on the coattails of others? Are they interdependent? which is kind of what you want for a good leader to be interdependent, or are they over-independent? Are they that lone wolf who will just go out there? These all build a picture. I mean, obviously, having done thousands of these things now, I can kind of read them very quickly. But what happens when they, the profile comes back, they have a two-hour debrief with me, rather like this, online, and I take them through the 16 aspects of their emotional intelligence. You talked a lot about uh, trust and authenticity, and these are two things that I'd really like to uh, develop because I think as a profession, sales is not widely trusted. And there is a, a general sense, and I think sometimes it's misplaced, but often it's not, that salespeople are in it for themselves rather than for the interests of the customer. And I, I have a view that great salespeople understand that their job is to serve. It's to help other people. And the money is simply a byproduct. It's a measure of how much other people value the help that they are providing. So let's talk a little bit about authenticity. For someone to be able to be genuine and authentic, what conditions need to exist inside their own mind and within their world for them to be able to do that and be genuine. I think that comes back to self-regard in a way. I think that self-regard plays a, a understanding how well you regard yourself without making yourself an island is really key in building trust in yourself. Uh, if you trust in yourself, then you be, one becomes more confident and, and, and is able to trust other people. Authenticity comes from knowing who you really are 
from understanding who really are. The degree to which you invite the trust of others by being principled, reliable, consistent, known. And I think all authenticity is kind of like trust. It kind of builds up, but it, people can feel authentic, whether you're authentic or not. I think people know somebody who's trustworthy. They display characteristics that are all around authenticity. They're usually reliable. They're depended. You can depend on them. When I was a sales person, if I promised to do something for a customer, I did it. And a lot of my colleagues would be told off by the boss for not getting things done. Oh, you didn't follow up that. But I got the order. But that order may have been dependent on on other things. So I think sales as a profession sometimes hasn't helped itself or salespeople haven't helped themselves. Having integrity, honesty, guiding values, understanding what your values are, understanding your principles and aligning yourself to those helps with build your, your, or your authenticity. If you change direction too readily or too easily, in an attempt to meet other people's expectations, that's not necessarily you being authentic. I think some people find it difficult and hard to uh, make themselves difficult to read, hard to, to see. They overcommit. They fail to deliver on, on the promises we've just mentioned. And that really does have a big, a big leaning on how, how authentic you come across. So authenticity often... When we run EIs on salespeople, emotional intelligence profiles, they can come across with a, a tendency to have a typical to low score on authenticity. So how do you build trust? Great question. It's not difficult to build trust if you become fully aware of yourself and know who you are, if you keep to your beliefs, if you're reluctant to delegate, for example, and take on too much personally, you're going to start to fail at things and people then start to question whether you're trustworthy. So in knowing yourselves and not question, knowing yourself and being working within the boundaries that you know you're capable of, people then start to see you as more authentic and trustworthy. It's okay to say no. It's okay to say, do you know what? I can't handle that at the moment. That again is an authentic response. It builds trust. I will get around to it, providing that you do. It's a confidence. It's an element of confidence that you have to build in yourself. In talking and being trustworthy is aligned to your own integrity and your own values. You can build it. We do build it within people, within relationships. As a psychotherapist, trust is a big thing. I think we have to help collaborate people's expectations, but the profiles indicate where they are on the scale of trusting. And the first interesting question I ask people around trust is, what's your relationship with trust like? And people will immediately go back and go, well, I don't trust any bastard. I can't trust anyone these days. Or, no, I, I, I trust people until they do me wrong. And then when they do me wrong, I just get rid of them and that's it. They only do me wrong once. And you, you know the stereotypical answers yeah. as well as I do. Trust, um, but verify. Yes, yes, yes. But I think, I think if, you, if you check into yourself 
if you provide people the, and, with the right information about yourself, if you are authentic and if you genuinely love what you sell and what you do, you naturally give off a more authentic and trustworthy aura. Now, of course, if you you then have to communicate your expectations accurately. I think often people don't make it clear at the end of a sale or during the sale, even at the beginning of the sale, what the journey is going to be like and how you're going to walk alongside them in th- through that journey. It's a process that one goes through in answer to your question. You can build trust, but it depends where you are on the trustworthy scale as to where we start. I think there is a really simple lesson, which is people are never afraid of you if you tell them what you're going to do. Exactly. And the problem I see very often is salespeople have a tendency to play this bait and switch, smoke and mirrors, they're cagey. But I think the real starting point is intent. It's all well and good being passionate about your product. But if your intent is there to make the sale instead of qualify, can I help? And if I can, am I the right person to help? Then the prospect will naturally pick up that you're trying to serve yourself, not them. And too often, salespeople forget that we are dealing with living, breathing, mostly sentient human beings who are creatures of emotion. We're creatures of story. And we are also creatures of bias. And so I'd like to bring in the subject of bias in prejudgment, prejudice. When salespeople go to meet a prospect, I think they bring with them a very, or too often they bring with them a, a tight filter in terms of what they're listening for. So they, they hear what they want to hear rather than what was being said. If they don't have good levels of self-awareness, they will project onto the prospect what they think has been agreed rather than what has actually been agreed. And one of the most useful things for me has been learning how to contract. So creating little agreement after little agreement and making sure that before we move forward that we are working in lockstep, that we're working towards the same objective. And so to agree up front what we want to happen by the end, give permission for both sides to be able to walk away without any pressure and no hard feelings. Mm. Get permission to ask tough, difficult, uncomfortable questions. And for the other person to have the right not to answer them. Sorry, John, you were going to say. I just couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I was that... For in the early years of my sales career, when I was driving my Ford Cortina around with my bag in the back, I was quite literally going in and saying, have I got the greatest thing for you? You're going to love this. And I would just be on sell and tell the minute I walked through the door. And I'd get it out and I'd put it on the table and say, look at it, isn't it brilliant? He said, I, don't do, I love it. I'd love your enthusiasm, John, but we don't need one of those. It took me a long time to realize that I was on sell and I was on tell and not on listen. And it was only, going back to your point, it was only when I began to listen and to really listen. I mean, luckily, as a psychotherapist, there was five years training and there was two of them was on active listening. Two ears, one mouth. 
And I had an old sales manager who told me that. And he said, look, you're really good and enthusiastic. You're like a, a Labrador puppy when you go in there, he said. But you, you, you really do have to kind of listen and hear what the customer's saying. And I think it is understanding. I mean, what I do now is, is I just ask people three questions. I don't even sell anything. I don't even open, don't even try and sell. You know, what challenges are you facing? Or what are the things you're looking for? The challenges you face in the next few months and years? What keeps you awake at night? Uh, and what are you doing about them? Going back to your point, and can I help? If I can help, I will. And really understand what's going on for that other person. If you can do that, and then join them, as you said, in the journey and saying, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do now. This is where I'm going to go and, that, and tell the story, go along with them on the journey. That's really, really important. It took me a long time to learn that. But it's about the, the listening skills, becoming more aware of them and becoming more aware of yourself. What is really going on in that transaction? It's hard to get some people, salespeople particularly, to pause sometimes and, and go, yeah, what is going on? Because I've got the latest LED television here that why aren't you going to want to buy 10,000 of these or whatever it might be? I don't want that size. Can kill the sale. You know, yeah. they're all 40 inch and sorry, we can only sell 30 inches. It's just that little question, that little point that, the, that you didn't ask or the point that the buyer has made that you just think, oh. I've just spent an hour and a half trying to sell him these. You can save an awful lot of time simply by finding out what uh, people are trying to resolve. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I've never listened my way out of the sale. I'm pretty sure I've talked my way out of millions and millions <laughs> of pounds worth of so, selling. So have I. Talk to me about the skill of listening because, uh, you know, obviously trying to encapsulate what you've learned in two years training. It's going to be a bit tricky in five minutes. But what are the fundamentals and the principles that um, make you a good listener? That's a very good question because there was never one. So I know. <laughs> I'll try and condense it down for you. There's one key technique that I can give you and, and your listeners as a, uh, as, a, as a really good piece of advice that was given to me. But it's be interested and be curious and tune in to that person. and. There's a technique, the gift I'll give you is, the technique is mirroring. So if you're listening, truly listening to some, somebody, you mirror it back your understanding of what they've said. So am I correcting understanding what you're really looking for is an increased margin? You're looking to increase your margin. That's particularly important to you. Yes, they acknowledge you're with them. They've got you. You're listening. And make notes. I always used to make notes once I started to go down this road. And make notes because you can be a good listener. It doesn't make you a good rememberer. You can listen very attentively while you're in the moment with the person. And you can pick up on the verbs. I always pick up on the verbs now, the, the, the doing and the action words. And even if I write notes at the end of a a therapy session or a coaching session. I just circle the verbs mainly and just focus, focus on them. But be interested. If you're not interested in that person, you're not really going to listen. In the early days of being a salesperson, when I 
do coach young salespeople now, you can actually see that they're thinking of the next thing that they want to say or how they're going to respond and they haven't heard what you've said. As a psychotherapist, it's fantastic. I mean, I've had people sat opposite me that have literally said a sentence and I've asked them, could you repeat that sentence for me? And you know what they say nine nine times out of ten, Marcus, they'll say, why, what did I just say? (laughs) (laughs) Which I find (laughs) remarkable. Uh, The gift for me was mirroring. To be a really good listener, mirror back what you've heard. It doesn't have to be verbatim, but you can say, so my understanding is... And become curious. Become curious about that person. You said something earlier about we are human beings. We are emotional. We like story. We want people to get involved with us. And to be, when I really knew I'd become a salesman, I knew I'd become a good listener. And I, I, I built up a good customer base that way. And I built strong, loyal customers because I cared. I went back to my car and wrote my notes. And I wrote down what football team they support, what his wife's name was, his daughter's name, his pet's name. What, you know, I knew a lot about that client. Didn't remember a lot of it, so I had to write it down and do a, what I had a client card. That was in the days before we had computers, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd have had computers. Or, I, I did great. And pile of faxes before you know it. It was, and I did have a dictaphone, which made my life a lot easier as as time went on. But it's really taking an interest. If you're a a salesperson, not only should you be interested in what your product is and what it does as benefit, we can go in as features and benefits, but what is it going to do for that person's life? How are you going to know it's going to do that to that person's life if you don't know that person, what that person's problems are? What are they dealing with? What are they dealing with? Mark Coulston has a, a couple of lovely mind hooks. One is be interested, not interesting. And all people want to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And what's really key here is that you need to have your prospects understand that you understand how they feel within that framework. Because if you understand how they feel, you can understand what's driving them, where their motivation comes from to make a change, to make a purchase decision, or to decide, you know, this isn't right for me. And I I think too many salespeople operate from um, a position where they do something to the customer and they use technique. And I think that one of the best lessons that I've learned over the years is that the minute you're trying to do a move on somebody, then the technique becomes a weapon instead of a shield. And it's your job to be your customer or your prospect's ally, not Mm. their accomplice and not their adversary. And if you haven't paid great attention, if you haven't listened, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, there is an acronym, STFU, which stands for shut the fuck up and make sure that you stop and you listen all the way to the end of their sentence and then pause for a count of four to five or six and allow them to continue talking if they want to, because the silence is really important. Miller Hyman did a bit of research on this. They followed 10,000 salespeople around and they measured the time that the average salesperson could 
stay silent after a prospect finished talking. And the average length of time was 0.6 of a second. Gong recently released some stats on this as well. And they're very close as well. They're doing it at 0.7 of a second, but with accurate technology. So that statistic hasn't changed in 15 years. So listening is still a massively under-trained, underdeveloped skill. No, I agree. It was only when I trained in active listening that I realized I hadn't been listening. And I was on transmit more than I was on receive. Um, True listening, that mirroring back what you've heard, goes back to the point that we made earlier, creates a bond of trust. You're sharing things. And if you become, the thing for me in active listening was becoming curious and more curious and doing exactly what you said, shut the fuck up. And sometimes there's a polite, person, of it. There's a polite <laughs> person, which is, wait, why am I talking? Yeah. And if you cannot find a justifiable reason other than to fill the silence, you have no business flapping your lips. Your job is to gather information, it's not to give it. Your job is to sell not educate. And the the problem is that so many salespeople think that the uh, the prospect needs to be educated in the product. They don't. They don't care about your product. They could buy any number of different products that all solve the same kind of problem. Um, They have to believe that you can help them fix it. And the only way they're going to do that is if you've taken the time to diagnose. And you need to go from a country doctor in the diagnosis phase to the surgeon. No one wants to go to a surgeon who's a bit nervous about which way to crack open the chest. You know, John, should we go in through the front or the back uh, to get to your heart? What do you reckon? I'll leave it up to you. That doesn't work either. So when you get to the solution uh, uh, point in the sale, you need to be clear and directive and you need to be able to uh, assert yourself because they come to us for leadership and direction and a safe pair of hands to help them. If they could solve their problem, they would have, but they need help. And it's incumbent on us to do that. Mm. So what, what are the questions? Sorry, what, what, uh, go on, you, you carry on. I just, I just wanted to go back to that point. Uh, interestingly, as a, as a therapist and a coach and having been a salesperson, I go back to that point that you made earlier. People... You leave jobs for one of three reasons. You leave a relationship, any relationship, for one of three reasons. goes back to the point you made. People want to be seen, heard, and valued. And if they leave a job and say, I'm not getting paid enough money, that's the excuse. They don't feel valued. Oh, nobody listens to me. They don't feel heard. Or nobody says, well, why don't you ask? I really want to congratulate you on that last sale you made. They don't feel seen. It's the same in a personal relationship. If you don't feel seen, heard, and valued in life yourself, why would you expect other people to do the same? And I think it's that reciprocal exchange that builds trust. And I'll, t- I'll give you a good example of the biggest lesson I ever learned that blindsided me. And it was, I was approached at the end of the 90s by Oxford University to launch a company around a particular piece of technology that they'd developed. They were the only people in the world that had got it. They approached me, could I do it? I said, I have no idea what this technology is, but I'll go out and do some research in the world and find out. Took me a couple of months to do the research, put a plan together and went back to them. And I got a long story short, we started this company up and I went out and raised a few million quid. And we worked really hard on 
building this piece of uh, this technology and going around the world and selling it to people. And that was my role. I went around the world with the professor and we were demonstrating it and selling it to people. But what I didn't do is I didn't do enough listening and I didn't do enough research. So I ended up selling the wrong product to the wrong people at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. So when we came to launch it, it was a complete and utter disaster. And I couldn't understand it because all the, all, everybody I'd spoken to said, this is a brilliant, this is, we really do need this, we really want it. But I was selling and it was, it was a great product, but it was the wrong product that I was selling to the wrong people at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. Actually, I was in the wrong marketplace. Now that's getting it wrong big time. Cost us 18 months and we were burning at that time we were burning about $500,000 a month. We had offices in Japan, America, and it, and, it, and it cost me. And I hadn't done enough research and I hadn't listened carefully enough. It's really interesting. I mean, my coach always tells me, speak to your customers first uh, before you uh, go out uh, to market with anything and find out, will they buy it? And you see this all the time. My pal, Jerry Lemberg, I don't know if you remember Jerry, he was one of the four original people who set up Intel. And he went into venture capital. And uh, he used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And depressingly, he was right on the money. Because so often, you know, people develop the cucumber cover. I remember on Dragon's Den, Rourke McMaster, his name was, and he came up and developed the cucumber cover. And everyone loved him. And then Peter Jones came along and just cut the end of the cucumber off um, and said, there, there's the problem solved. And so it was an elegant solution to a problem that doesn't exist. But you see this very often because the salesperson, again, comes with these prejudices, these biases. And founders in particular, they fall in love with their ugly baby. And all they can see is this golden-haired, you know, beautiful child. Um, <laughs> And everyone else is thinking, yeah, I'm not really seeing it because they don't listen. They don't diagnose and they run ahead of themselves. Another thing my coach always tells me, for which I'm eternally grateful, is he always asks me the question when I've come up with some harebrained scheme is if you could only keep 50%, which 50% would you keep? And I think what we also tend to do is we tend to overcomplicate because in our head, it all makes sense. But unless you've spoken to the customer and got the, you know, it's come straight from the horse's mouth, you don't know whether it's going to work. And so I think, you know, most businesses need to be cash flow positive, simple, and debt free. And that's how you build a good business. And you focus on understanding what your customer wants. And then you go out and you find or develop product that they need that will help them solve their problems. That's right. Then you can grow a solid business. But I, I see so many businesses, and I'm curious, again, because you've obviously worked in the investment side of things as well, why the failure rates um, in uh, private equity and venture capital businesses are so high? And I'd like you to tie that back into mm. the emotional intelligence of the investors. I will tell you why, because... 
I eventually did, I had listened actually, by, by the way, I had listened to the market and I'd listened to what the customers were telling me and we were aligning our product up to those customers. However, it was the wrong product for the wrong people within that organization. Uh, and that put us back because we had to re-engage and whole different story. So yes, raising money and early startup businesses. That business, by the way, went on to be valued at 280 million and did, did very well. But I then set up a business called Conduit Partners. And we spent then, that, that was around the time we met, I think, in the early noughties. Yeah. And Conduit Partners was a go-to-market evaluation service that was missing for the startup and early stage businesses. Big investment funds were around then. You had Scottish Enterprise, Finance Wales. Some of them are still around. Invest Northern Ireland, Carbon Trust came along. Big investment houses with multi-million pound investment pots. There was a lot about the entrepreneur. And the I, I'd been an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur winner from that, the company I was just talking about. And they, they put me on this roadshow. And there's a huge gap in the early stage businesses and understanding of go to market and which channels do you use and how do you get there. And like you said, every every um, good idea has got a thousand fathers and a bad idea is a bastard child. And every everybody who's invented something thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So we were going to, I was personally, and then the company, Conduit Partners that I founded, were getting contacted by lots of universities at that time and lots of funds and saying, because the co previous company had been so successful, can you turn our lead into gold? Would you come and see if we've got any gold? And so Conduit Partners was formed and we fitted the gap where, what do you need if you need money? Well, you need a bank, an accountant and lawyers, IP lawyers, and you need some investors. Well, investors will probably invest in something that may even be a proof of concept. They may even invest in something if they see that you've aligned it to a market need. But where it was starting to fall down was your channels and routes to market weren't defined. Your value proposition wasn't defined. You didn't really understand the trends and needs of your customers. And they weren't aligned. So there was no alignment. And the team themselves were at best, dysfunctional. At worst, there were a bunch of academics that think, thought that, you know, got the cure for cancer. And what our role was to go in, we started going to the universities and, and looking at their IP. And then we realized there was a lot of IP that wanted to go to market, but money wasn't matching up to it. So we aligned ourselves eventually to the investors. And what the investors wanted to know, is there a market for this thing? Who's going to buy it? How much? All the things that we know and love. But the biggest issue where most of the companies fell, fell down was the people themselves weren't capable of taking that to market. So you may identify a great market. You may identify great needs. And you may indeed have a wonderful product. But you have to build a value proposition around a set of people like-minded people aligned behind a common vision to take that to market. And I think that that's where it, it falls down. And, and I started that company back in 2002, and it, we successfully did over 650 companies' evaluations over the 12 years the conduit is around. And the biggest issue that we had was that despite us going back to investors and saying, 
you know, we're not really sure that these are the right people. You are going to need to get some good salespeople. The product's a bit clunky and investors would still go, yeah, yeah, we still think it's got an opportunity there. We, even if we told them, do you know what? The market's not really going to be mature enough for this for five years. The guys are good guys. We think it's going to be right, but the market's not quite there. Well, we'll take a punt on that. We'll put a million into it. And they wasted so much money. It became ridiculous. And it was really strange. But just before COVID, I was talking to a few people who were in the investment business and they were still doing the same thing. They hadn't learned from the investors hadn't learned. The average return, I believe, is around 8% in venture capital, Mm. which is shocking. A few years ago, there were bank accounts that paid more than that, and you didn't have to uh, take any real risk. So, uh, But again, it strikes me that that they're so fixated on the idea that they're great gamblers. And I I think, to a large extent, it is a very similar uh, disease to gambling. That basically, well, if we spread our bets, one of the horses might come in. And that, that strikes me as being done, bad, done money. Then they start to interfere with the businesses. Drew D'Agostino described you've got good money, bad money, and dumb money. And his preference would always be go for dumb money that just leaves you to get on with it. And Callum Lang is building a fabulous business, MBH. And uh, in, in the space of five years, it looks like he's on trajectory to turn out, uh, to create a startup business that has a billion-dollar market cap. Now, that's pretty impressive. Mm, um, but he, he, he finds businesses that are established, well-run, and he puts the investment in, uh, helps them take away a lot of the frustrating day-to-day administration, mm. and just lets them get on with it. And uh, uses the, the the value of the stock. I mean, he's in in their first year, they were actually actually able to pay a dividend despite COVID. I think the, it's an interesting point because I, like you, think it's like it's like it was like a crapshoot back at the uh, end, uh, beginning of the end of the nineties, beginning of the noughties. It was like a crapshoot, and I think it's I don't think it'll come back now post COVID, but it was coming back where there were funds and money being raised aligning it to universities like Oxford and Cambridge, some of the red bricks, if you like, that were 20 and 30 million and saying, we'll build you a new laboratory and we want first IP rights on anything that comes out of that laboratory for the next 20 years. Now, yes, they might come up with a cure for cancer, but, but it, it was a pretty, it's, it was a crapshoot. Nobody was really then looking at what about the go-to-market and the trials and the, you know, the actual logistics. Venture capitalists, to me, turned into vulture capitalists. I mean, they were literally picking up carcasses. They, they, they didn't. I think you put it very mildly when you said that they, they often go in and put the money in and, and start interfering. There was no interference. It was butchering. They were literally stripping cost out of a business that was going along quite nicely. That had actually done its due diligence on its go-to-market and its channels and its product and ticking along nicely. They saw, they see the opportunity and they push the money in and it's all about control for them. They won't just only put an advisor on the board. They want control and they want it as quickly as they possibly can. I know I've experienced it firsthand. I've had Intel Capital give me five to ten, invest five to 10 million in one of my companies 
And we've raised money across a number of independent, what I would call sophisticated investors. Unsophisticated investors are less interfering, as you say, unless they think things are going wrong. And then, my God, your phone rings because you've got lots of them and they've all got a little bit of it. But the venture venture capital, I think, is a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, uh, I've never been a fan. I think if you if you're looking at venture capitalists today with that eight percent return that you're saying, I mean, why would you bother? And they take all of the costs associated with that investment away from the investment itself. So it's you, you're, you're never going to win with that. I've never, I don't understand, don't trust, and don't like the venture capital model. I think it needs a real. I hope this crisis now gives it a drains up and and people really look at it and go you know the only way to go forward from this is is for me the two two key things for me going going forward are going to be true collaboration and why i think true collaboration is going to be essential not only with other organizations but within an organization now i don't think people can look to look to sales anymore to be the the magic one standing alone to bail you out if you get things wrong I think all aspects of the business, all departments, all elements of the business have got to be aligned in order to empower true sales and true genuine sales. I I heard a truly depressing statistic a couple of weeks ago, which is that 42% of board members said their company would operate better if only the board was aligned. Now, if you've got that kind of dysfunction at the top, all that happens is you create politics at the bottom and uh, you end up fighting with yourself. It's crazy. I'll tell you one very quick story. At Conduit Partners, we did a survey because I had some very bright people. I never had more than 20 consultants in the business and we had some very bright people. And I said, you know what we really, the real value we could add and where we could find out is what are the components that make some of these startups successful? And what are the components that are missing from these, all these ones that we were seeing that were failing? We did this big survey, and we were sponsored by some big banks and some big accountancy firms. And we went out, we interviewed something like 300 investors and businesses and did this whole elaborate survey. I've still got it somewhere. And we asked them that question, what makes investments or what makes your business successful and what are the components that are missing in the ones that are failing and it came down to three key things we boiled it down boiled it down and we presented it to a whole uh, big room full at the grosvenor house and whatever came down to three things all executables focus alignment and agility were the three key factors in the successful businesses they were focused on their marketplaces they were uh, agile enough to move to the, with the trends of marketplaces, and they had the ability to switch direction quite quickly. So they were agile, they were very focused, they were very aligned. So they aligned the, their product to the needs of the market, and they aligned the people who were going to execute that strategy to the market and mm-hmm. to the market needs. They were all very positive. They had the right attitude, the right behaviors, but it all came down to how focused they were, how agile they were, and the ability to be fleet of foot made them successful. The failures, of course, the failures, of course, were not agile. They'd lost focus, and they hadn't really got the ability to deploy. 
Um, I see those three uh, those three themes in all the companies that I've interviewed for my scale ups and hypergrowth podcast. Mm. So UiPath, Eight by Eight, Psychotic, Crystal, Splunk. These companies are growing at hundreds or thousands of percents per annum. And the red threads that run through them are definitely focus alignment and agility. Mm. They focus on making sure that they have the, a clear total addressable market and then they identify who is their ideal customer within that total addressable market. Yeah. And they don't deviate. They hire great people. There is alignment throughout the organization. So in Splunk, one of the things that every new hire, whatever their role was, was they had to be able to tell the Splunk, Splunk story and within the first three months, they have to present that to different stakeholders within the business. And they may have stand-up fights, but once they agreed a course of action, they would all commit to it. Tell me, what, what are you being influenced by? What, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you think is really worthwhile? It's been an interesting time, really, that this COVID for all of us, so I finished my first book in the in the in the uh, in the thing. So that's with a publisher at the moment. But I've been I read a lot anyway. But everything from De Bono to Stephen Covey to Carl Jung to you name it. I'm a big fan of um, Simon Sinek. I think Sinek's saying a lot, a lot of interesting things. And I never thought I'd going to use the sentence that I'm about to use. I've actually become quite a good fan, big fan of um, Russell Brand. He's gone through a tremendous transformation in his life from this this out-and-out sex and drugs addict into this exploration that he's gone on, gone on to. I've started my second book, so I haven't had a lot of time to read because I've been writing. But I've studied one of the things I loved as I was going through my sales life in understanding things. I used to watch a lot of John Cleese and Spike Milligan, who were big in their day. John Cleese used to run a training company many, many years ago. He sold it to Hugh Laurie, Visual Arts. Oh, yeah, Visual Arts. And he did some amazing stuff on how to be on an exhibition stand and what to do and what not to do and the mistakes that we all make. But he said something like, if you want, to, want creative workers, give them enough time to play. And I think this lockdown has allowed me to, uh, time to, to play a little bit with writing a, 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 fiction, a fictitious novel, which is wonderful. And Spike Milligan had said, you know, smiling as enthusiasm are infectious. Smiling is infectious. So I've been looking at a lot of comedy. And if you want to study human behavior and if you want to study how to sell, watch watch comedy, watch, you know, watch the genius that is uh, Billy Connolly, watch the genius, that, you know, that is Peter Kay and how they deliver and how their observational comedy comes from connecting with others and listening and observing and being curious and turning it into the into the funny, and I, and I think if you know we've got we've talked about integrity, but they bring an honesty to their comedy, and you become aware that they are really enjoying what they're doing, and you trust them to make you laugh because they will make you laugh. And I was thinking about coming onto this this particular program with you, and thinking about what's the, what's the giveaway for me would be study comedy and study it well and watch them watch the top people do it and you'll learn a lot about not only how to deliver but how they've constructed a stand-up comedy routine based on their observations and that's true listening and that's true integrity 
I absolutely agree. And if you get an opportunity, go on a comedy course, learn how to observe, learn how to write jokes, because actually it will improve your content marketing dramatically. The whole concept of the constraints that uh, comedy teaches you. There's a lady down in Brighton called Jill Edwards uh, who trained uh, Ramesh Ranganathan, Jimmy Carr, Shappi Sandy, and dozens of others. Uh, what I learned from going on that program wasn't that uh, I was a particularly good comedian, but the constraint was really helpful. And the whole process of set up and punch is really powerful in your copy. So set up the position that the prospect is in and then come at it from 90 degrees to break that pattern because what people are expecting isn't necessarily what they get by the end. And that's proven to be very effective for me. Two things I wanted to say at the end. There's two C's that I wanted to leave you with and they're not the ones you've immediately thought of. But the first being, as I've said, is, is that collaboration is going to be important going forward. But I also think, and, and where, where my business EI people focus is continuity. I think the one thing that's kept me fresh and at 65 years of age still got a passion for coming on here and doing this sort of thing is I've constantly been learning. I've been in CPD even without knowing I was in CPD. But I think going forward now as we emerge from this, I think it's going to be more important for not only the individual but for companies to be continually processing and learning and, and not fearing new, new ways of thinking like emotional intelligence. You know, we, we actually don't call it a, a emotional intelligence because I think the status of COVID has, has, has brought as a bit of a, the barriers are up at the moment. We say emotional intelligence at the moment, people think, oh, I can't, I can't be doing that. And I think for me that the best thing you can take to work is a positive attitude. There's nothing to fear. Be yourself and listen. You are enough, so just listen, and you'll learn a lot more. Fabulous. So how can people get a hold of you, John? Uh, we're at bigpicture at eipeople.co.uk, or if you just want to look at the website, it is in transition at the moment. We've got a holding one up at the moment, but it's eipeople.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I think you can't hide these days. So if people want to find you, they can find you. And I've got John at JohnTrenor.com as well. Brilliant. John Trenor, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sandler.com. And if you think that you'd be a good guest or you know somebody who'd be a good guest, then please uh, drop me an email as well or connect us both on LinkedIn. In the meantime, happy selling. Bye-bye.